Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. It's not just the weapon they're selling, right? It's an endorsement of violence. It's an endorsement of militarism and of particular militarized ideas of what it means to be a man. When you think of Rambo or John Wick or any character played by Jason Statham, you likely think of them as the epitome of what it means to be a man. The question is, why are the characteristics of hypermasculinity so closely associated with violence, guns and warfare? There's a concept called militarized masculinity, which refers to the assertion that traits stereotypically associated with masculinity can be acquired and then proven through military service or action, and combat in particular. And all over the globe, this assertion prevails. That's why, if we're to find peace in a world sullied by war, it's so important to view the issues we face through a feminist lens. However, female activists cannot advance the agenda alone. As part of the problem, men need to join the cause too. And that's where Dean Peacock comes in. He's the director of the Mobilising Men for Feminist Peace programme for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And I am delighted to say that he's my guest today. Chapter 1. Engaging Men The Women's International League for Peace and Freedom is the oldest women's peace-building organisation in the world. It was established in the middle of the First World War in conditions not entirely dissimilar to what we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine at the moment. Dean tells us about the origins of the WILPF and what it's doing now. Women pacifists from around um, mostly Europe but other parts of the world as well gathered in The Hague in 1915 to figure out how they could stop the war. Um, and how they could stop other wars from happening. And they developed a sort of platform for action. And interestingly, um, a number of the principles that they articulated in that platform of action became embedded in the founding treaties and documents of the League of Nations. And so from the very outset, Wilk was having a kind of significant, in some ways, disproportionate impact in terms of how global mechanisms, particularly Um, multilateral institutions were thinking about and responding to war. Um, And so the organization from those beginnings has, you know, remained in place. Um, It's sort of ebbed and flowed in terms of its size and membership and impact and influence over over the years, but currently um, has, you know, an international secretariat with about 50 staff working on a range of issues, which I'll explain in a moment, and then a global membership in country sections, as we call them, they're, they're, they're chapters, really independent, autonomous country chapters that um, identify their own priorities and work with the International Secretary to pursue peace. And what I have always been impressed about with regards to Wilf is its big, broad analysis. So on the one hand, you know, an organization founded by women has a focus on patriarchy and the kind of patriarchal foundations of war and the current economic order, but they've also always had a very clear economic analysis. So focused on the war economy, who profits from war and what are the economic drivers of war. And then more recently, they brought a kind of anti-colonial, decolonial focus, trying to make sense of the ways in which colonial boundaries and the legacy of colonialism influence war and the prospects for peace. 
And then in the last handful of years, I think have brought a really necessary focus on environmentalism and climate change and the relationship between you know, climate change and the dramatic shifts we're seeing in weather patterns and conflict, drought in parts of the world, what that does um, in terms of generating conditions for conflict or, or in fact floods. And so those are kind of key pillars of the organization's work, this focus on men, masculinities and patriarchy, focus on the war economy, focus on the legacy of colonialism and racism, and then um, really trying to make the connection between climate change and uh, conflict, and of course, articulating ways to address all of those forces. Um, so, you know, in terms of the project I work on, um, it's the first time Wilkfest had an explicit focus on engaging men as participants of its program. So Wilkfest always made demands on men, men in the war economy, men in the arms industry, men in national governments, men in multilateral organizations. But starting about a decade ago, Wilf and the Men Engage Alliance began to have discussions about how their two organizations might work together. I'm one of the co-founders of Men Engage, and Men Engage, a little bit like Wilf, is a membership organization. Over a thousand civil society organizations make up the Men Engage Alliance and interestingly spread all over the world. Um, so I join you today from Cape Town in um, the Southern Africa region. Men Engage is probably one of, you know, has one of the strongest regions, but 25 countries in Africa have formal Men Engage networks made up of women's rights organizations, organizations working on health, gender equality, gender-based violence. So this initiative emerges from discussions between Wilf and the Men Engage Alliance about how the two organizations could work together and link their in-country membership as well as their global advocacy goals. Um, and so I'm the first, one of the very first men to work at Wilf in a programmatic capacity. It's an incredible honor in the, what is it now, 107 year history to be leading this initiative that's attempting to mobilize men for feminist peace and counter-militarized masculinities. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about what that rather jargony language actually means. But, you know, I'm delighted to be working at Wilf. I have worked on issues related to men, conflict and violence since 1985, when I was a high school student here in South Africa and wandered onto the campus during a student protest and was tear gassed and chased by the police and was energized to become involved in anti-apartheid politics. And I then moved to the U.S. where I was involved in work to stop U.S. interventionism in Central America, to stop the Gulf War. And I've remained involved in social justice activism for a long time with a pretty sharp focus over the last 30 years on addressing men's violence. Um, so I've worked with perpetrators of violence in jails, in community settings in California. And then I returned to California, I went to South Africa after my studies and have done a, I've done a lot of work in the intersection of gender, gender-based violence, HIV and AIDS, and then social justice issues more broadly. And so, you know, for me, it's, it, it continues to be a labor of love. It's work that I find both incredibly interesting and deeply satisfying, and I continue to be surprised by how hungry men and women are to have a conversation about contemporary ideas of manhood and masculinities and how they very often don't work well for us. 
There's so much to unpick in that. And and anybody listening to this, just go on to whichever news site you look at, and, and there will be examples of all of the things you just articulated, whether it's competition for natural resources, whether it's climate change and the lack of um, drinkable water, whether it's, you know, land grabs, whatever. It's th- That's mm. all part of this problem, isn't it? But let's just take a, a step back and look at the very highest level here, mm. because it doesn't take a genius to look at politics and wonder where all of the female leaders are. The mm. things like the United Nations, big machines that govern the world are overwhelmingly dominated and staffed by men. So mm. the patriarchy is absolutely part of this problem and solution, mm. isn't it? Right? We, it cannot mm. be ignored, but we simply do not have enough women in high-ranking positions, do we? No, we most certainly don't. I mean, the UN is an interesting example in some ways where there's been significant change. So the um, Secretariat of the United Nations under Secretary General Guterres's leadership, um, he made a commitment to gender parity. And um, according to the latest reports, I think they've achieved that in the very highest levels of the UN system at HQ in New York. And if you look across at a number of the UN agencies, they're not doing badly in terms of gender parity and leadership. I think what they're struggling with in some ways is how to divest themselves of very gendered ways of thinking and working. And of course, the UN architecture that is still in place, um, that's profoundly unfair and unequal and concentrates power in the hands of those countries that sit in the positions of power. But then, you know, if we think outside of the UN um, national governments, there's an enormous amount of work to be done. And Then if we think about the corporate sector, that's where I think we see even less progress. You know, think about who's in charge of Fortune 500 companies and the undue influence they wield behind the scenes in national governments, in UN agencies. I think that's where we see unbridled men's power in positions of leadership with all sorts of predictable consequences when it comes to the issues we were just talking about, climate change, disregard for the climate, the war economy, etc. Chapter 2. The War Machine. The notion of the war machine is dominating the news agenda at the moment. Recently, we've seen President Zelensky requesting more arms from the UK for Ukraine's fight against Russia. Understandable, of course, he needs to protect his country. But what many of us forget is the extent to which people are profiting from this war. There are a lot of people with a lot of skin in the game. The war economy, to use Dean's phrase, lines the pockets of arms manufacturers. It's an industry worth billions of dollars. The various different industries that constitute, if you like, the arms industry are salivating at the moment. They are making profit hand over fist as NATO, the European Union, the US send weapons and fund the development of weapons. You know, they haven't had it this good for a really long time. The profits they make, the environmental consequences of the production of weapons, you know, and that's not even to talk about the threat of nuclear weapons that loom over us at the moment. And of course, you know, this is a really, really difficult situation where you've got a supreme patriarch in the, in the form of Vladimir Putin invading another country, um, Ukraine invoking the right to self-defense appropriately. But conversations about peace 
have, you know, by and large, just been off the table. Whereas these conversations about war and the steady ratcheting up of the, the weapons that are being used continues unabated. And we see politicians, including from the UK, right, positioning themselves, the, the closer they are to, to Zelensky, the more macho they feel, the more stature they think they have, whether that's Boris Johnson, who's still going off to Ukraine, or Rishi Sunak yesterday. So yeah, you know, this is where we are at the moment. And this is what years of arms buildup leads to. Wilp, by the way, we're very proud to have been part of the establishment of the International Coalition to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Wilp has a long-standing program called Reaching Critical Will, which is a disarmament program. And the organization is, you know, proud of its pacifist position. And that's not to say that some of our partners, our women's rights, you know, partners, the Wilp section in Ukraine hasn't also pushed back in moments and said, well, we do have the right to defend ourselves. So recognize the complexity of the situation. I want to put this into some form of context, Dean, because people may be unaware as to how big the gap is. But one of the overriding aims is to shift money away from war and onto gender equality. And I want to just highlight something because this is on your website. This mm. I, I gasped when I read this and I want to read it out. It says, quote, the global feminist movement has the same budget as one F-35 fighter plane, about $110 million. Read that twice. And I did. And I've read it about 15 times. And I still gasp every single time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so we're spending what we're spending on one fighter plane trying to do the work of the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom. This is wholly inadequate. We need to shift money away and into gender equality. And if we did that, what might we start to see, Dean? Yeah, I mean, you know, and the numbers you read there, shocking as they may be, pale in comparison to the cost, of course, of other weapons like nuclear weapons. So if we think about, you know, many countries around the world, in the global north, in the global south, and we think about the thousands, the hundreds of thousands, in fact, the millions of women who are stuck in abusive relationships don't have anywhere to go. The special rapporteur on violence against women um, back in 2017 at the Human Rights Council came up with a ratio of number of citizens to the number of shelters that should exist. Now, the truth of the matter is in a place like South Africa, we have some of the highest rates of violence in the world. There are just no shelters. Um, and the shelters, the very few shelters that exist, get by month to month with precarious funding. They really do kind of scrabble together, you know, enough money to keep the doors open so that women who are facing often potentially lethal violence in their home have somewhere to escape to right. um, themselves with their children. Were we to you know, have access to the enormous amounts of the trillions of dollars that go into war efforts and into the war economy, we would be able to easily meet the recommendations of the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women and make sure that women who are in abusive relationships had somewhere to go. And in fact, that the men who were being abusive had access to psychosocial support. Try in South Africa to find counseling services if you're a perpetrator of violence. You will not find them. They do not by and large exist. You know, we could go on to what it would mean for hospital beds, for antenatal care, for neonatal wards, for basic health care. And so if we think 
you know, of the care economy more broadly. And of course, the care economy at the moment is an economy in which women's labor is often taken for granted and, and, and certainly overrepresented, right? But if we think about social services, if we think about care and the amount of money that we're short there, um, in a country like South Africa, we've got 40% unemployment. Um, we struggle to generate jobs for people. In fact, we generate fewer jobs than people who come of age as adults each year. Um, but if we were generating care jobs, jobs that are good for the economy, good for the climate, we would you know, be producing valuable jobs and providing employment in a productive way. But you know, in South Africa too, we instead put money into the military, into counterproductive policing sometimes. And so this notion of security being militarized security instead of the security you get from a caring society is something that Wilf talks about a lot. And were we to put our resources into proper education, proper health care, to create a meaningful social welfare net for people, we would simultaneously address the root causes of war and conflict, right, in many places. So if we think about what's driving conflict in many countries, perhaps not Russia and Ukraine, but it's very often deprivation and you know, material need. So if we were to put resources into the care economy, um, I think we would fundamentally diffuse many of the drivers of war and conflict. There is such a dire emergency um, when it comes to access to social services of various different sorts, and we squander huge amounts of money at enormous environmental cost building weapons. And um, it's just crazy. And it, and it reveals in some ways um, the enormous power of the arms industry, that they get away with this year after year, decade after decade, unaccountable behind the scenes, diverting money from public funds into war chests, fundamentally. Let's talk about masculinity for a second. It used to be the case that, for example, UK prime ministers, all they wanted was a handshake with the president on the White House lawn. Now, what mm. everybody wants is the photo op with Zelensky. As you say, that will mm. inevitably mm. make people like Rishi Sunak feel more masculine. Mm. But it's easy to feel more masculine with a large hunting rifle, you know, in your in your hands. And mm. we have this really problematic right to bear arms in the US. So you either own arms yourself or you may we'll drift drift this into the gaming industry, um, proliferates what we used to call shoot 'em ups, but it's now actually much more serious than that. We tend to forget that things like the gaming industry, and we've talked about this in an episode early on, where I interviewed the chief exec of Games Radar. And mm. you know, she said the gaming industry is bigger than the music and film industry combined. It's absolutely huge. And the sheer mm. number of games that you can play where you can shoot to kill people. Mm. Mm. This is a problem at every single level, whether you own guns or not. The fact that you surround yourself with this as quote unquote entertainment mm. says a lot about the, the depth of the problem, doesn't it? It most certainly does. And I think we have to situate the kind of marketing of masculinities and guns in the gaming industry alongside this broader phenomenon that Roger Stahl, I think, brilliantly calls militainment, right? So he looks at uh, the gaming industry, but he also looks at the ways in which the Pentagon in the US and elsewhere military shape the entertainment industry. 
every branch of the US military has a Hollywood liaison office. The Army does, the Navy does, the Marine Corps do. And they provide equipment, they provide technical advice in exchange for influence over the scripts, right? Now, this is not just the predictable films, it's not just Top Gun, it's literally thousands of films dating back to the origins of Hollywood. You know, they, they do a pretty good job of trying to cover that up. So with Avatar, Roger Stahl documents the ways in which the Pentagon and James Cameron got into a faux fight to hide the fact that the Pentagon had in fact influenced the script, right? So um, they complained about the depictions of the US military in the form of the Marine who's in Avatar. Uh, they'd already shaped the storyline, but they went to significant lengths to pretend that they hadn't. And so whether it's you know influencing, as I say, thousands of films, or whether it's in fact creating many of the war games that are the most popular video games. Um, so that's just you know, the, the military. And then if we look at the arms industry, they do lots of product placement. The video game companies won't disclose the amount of money that they receive from the arms industry. The arms, uh, the, the, the arms industry and gun manufacturers are a little bit more forthcoming about that. Um, and there've been a number of exposés that look at the extent to which gun manufacturers deliberately place their weapons in the hands of young people in the form of video games. And they do that for a reason, right? Because as young people become familiar with particular weapons in video games, they're more likely to purchase them. And that's quite clearly documented. There's research that shows, you know, a particular brand of gun shows up in a video game and sales of those guns then increase. But it's not just the weapon they're selling, right? It's an endorsement of violence. It's an endorsement of militarism and of particular militarized ideas of what it means to be a man. Um, I have a 12-year-old nephew um, who sits in Los Angeles, got a lovely gaming chair, and he spends a hell of a lot of time gaming with his friends. Um, I'm really curious, and next time I'm there, I want to spend a little bit more time watching what he's playing, um, because certainly some of it is war games. And I think, you know, we have to pay much closer attention than I think we're currently doing to what that means. Um, so this question of the nexus of the entertainment industry, the arms industry, and the military uh, socializes millions of young people, especially young men. And, you know, I don't think it's any surprise that we've got this, you know, in some ways kind of hyper-masculine and popular culture at the moment. The, the bodies of people represented in films about the military are so much bigger, so much more aggressive uh, Jackson Katz documents this well in his film, Tough Guys. You know, if you look at the stereotypical protagonist of an action film in the 30s or 40s, they're small, they carry small guns. Um, now they're, you know, enormously muscular. They have in some ways, as Jackson puts it, become the weapon. And I think that's really interesting. He says, uh, and I think it's, you know, it's borne out by um, what we see around us, that this is a direct response to men's insecurity in the face of claims by women, by people of color for greater rights. Um, and so faced with a more precarious claim on power, the film industry is depicting men in a more stereotypically powerful ways. So that's where we sit with. And I think the big question is, what do we do about it? Do we accept it? Um, how do we educate people, you know, including parents of children who are playing video games endlessly about 
what the process is of arriving at that video game product and content. Every year as a writer or as a screenwriter, I get access to the scripts for the nominations for best original screenplay and best adapted screenplay at the Academy Awards. And mm. whether this is a coincidence or not, but there was only one that was not available this year. And that was Top Gun Maverick. Okay. And you mentioned it, and we won't do any kind of conspiracy theory. We'll just let that hang there. I don't have access to it, and, and nobody can get a hold of it. But let's just oh, think oh. about that film, which, as a piece of entertainment, I really enjoyed. But mm. as a piece of propaganda, I mm. thought it was fascinating that we've now reached the stage where we're not even naming the enemy. That was mm. an unknown entity country force whatever whatever it is it's you could probably have a guess mm. but it's not named it's not made mm. clear it is mm. almost exclusively irrelevant mm. in terms of serving the narrative of top gun maverick because the only thing we care about is that this mission to destroy and kill is mm. successful and what's scary is that storytelling is such a powerful medium that it actually succeeded in doing that. It took you with mm, you on that mm. journey. You kind of didn't care who the nominal bad guy was mm. because you were so suckered into believing that what the US Army and Navy and, and Air Force were doing was the right thing. That's really mm. at the heart of this, isn't it? Top Gun Maverick mm. is much more than a piece of entertainment. It is a piece of propaganda, isn't it? Of course it is. Yeah, I mean, it's fundamentally jingoistic and it does this really clever and quite manipulative thing of positioning your protagonist as an underdog, right? Because he's older, because perhaps he's washed up, he's, you know, carrying around anguish of various different sorts. Um, and so you find yourself rooting for this guy, at least I did, you know, he's more or less my age in the film. Right. Um, even though you know he is flying a jet on behalf of the most powerful military in the world, that has done all sorts of heinous things around the world and in a completely unaccountable way. Most of the wars the US has fought in the last few decades have been illegal wars, uh, right? Whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, they were in overt violation of um, United Nations agreements and, and, and in fact, regulations. Chapter three, can we help? If you've ever watched the Ken Burns documentary on the conflict in Vietnam, you'll have seen how a government can so easily control the narrative, making war, not peace, seem the most logical option. That documentary made me realise everything I thought I knew about that war was wrong, fooled by US government lies and propaganda. And yet despite the exposés, despite all the illegal wars and bloodshed, war is still glorified. I can think of a multitude of films that feature war and conflict. For some reason, we're obsessed with it, addicted to it. So while the entertainment industry clearly has a lot to answer for, I asked Dean how industries like the arts can help organisations like the WILPF. No, it's a great question. And I mean, I haven't seen Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam, but I was in Vietnam and went to the Vietnam Museum about the war, right? And, you know, I grew up in South Africa, I spent most of my 20s and 30s in the US. And so, you know, even though I brought a critical lens to films about Vietnam that I watched, Full Metal Jacket, um, Platoon, 
the Rambos, etc., one still gets swept up and views the war. I think it's quite hard not to view the war through the eyes of kind of the U.S. take on, on what happened, right? So we all know the number of American servicemen who were killed in Vietnam, but few of us know the number of how many Vietnamese were killed. And um, going to the Memorial Museum in, in um, Ho Chi Minh City was really, really eye-opening. The same as going to some of the um, battlefields, the Kuchi tunnels, for instance, and the pride with which Vietnamese people tell the story of their ability to defeat the Americans. Fascinating. And just such a different perspective, obviously. To your question about what role entertainment could play, right? So we, we, we've talked a lot about the role that the entertainment industry often currently plays um, and the harm that that causes. Yeah, I mean, you know, documentary series like Ken Burns' is f- uh, films that show the actual cost of war, films that show the relationship between war and increased vulnerability of women to violence by men, right? The increased likelihood of sexual violence in war. So I think there are a series of films that have done a better job of showing the costs of war. Perhaps there are fewer that tell the story. I mean, I think there's a very powerful story to be told about the um, pacifist movements that tried really hard to stop the First World War. Adam Hirschfeld, um, The War to End All Wars, I believe is his book, tells the story of pacifists and the price that they paid in heroic ways, right? Opposing the First World War. There's a very, you know, where's the equivalent to Saving Private Ryan and the other films um, that have in some ways romanticized the First and Second World War? Where's the story that tells the current experience of Russian war resistors who are ending up in detention centers in the US, uh, spending months and months there because they fled Russia rather than fighting a war? You know, so I think a fuller range of stories that explore people's opposition to war and a fuller range of stories that depict men and women challenging the kinds of gender stereotypes that allow for war and that emerge from war, um, I think would be really powerful. The stories that would describe what happened, what's happened to the thousands, tens of thousands of vets in the US who arrived back from Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, deeply scarred by their experience and are then discarded, you know, live on the streets in the US. I once pitched a film idea and it won't surprise you to learn it got nowhere, but it was about based on real evidence, real data, real case studies, the number of US servicemen and women with gambling addictions that come from the prevalence of slot machines in US bases overseas. The US earns hundreds of thousands each year from these machines. And it creates a real problem for people when they return to civilian life. And it, it just got nowhere. Nobody, everyone was like, you can't, no, this isn't, we're not having this. It wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be allowed to make, you know, this film. And, yeah. and in a way, you mentioned Rambo, and I think Rambo is a really, really good example of somebody who on the face of it is that, muscular masculinity you know he has mm. been weaponized his body has been mm. weaponized hasn't he but actually i'm much more interested in the ptsd that he is quite obviously suffering from and yeah. the fact that we're not helping him 
address that and that manifests itself in violence towards others whereas actually instead of glorifying john rambo we should be helping him because there are tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people and vets like him that obviously need help and we're not telling their stories and when we do tell their stories yeah it's basically what if rocky were a soldier right that's that's it isn't it that's a good way of putting it i mean i'm reminded so during the first gulf war i was a student at university of california berkeley a radical campus in the u.s and we spent a lot of time in the streets trying to stop the war we blocked the you know the highways took the golden gate bridge the east bay bridge and we shut that city down for you know a few hours and then we were all arrested right but we drew enormous (laughs) inspiration from a group of uh, u.s soldiers from various different divisions who refused to serve jeff patterson was someone who marched with us on occasions. He was a guy who, at Camp Pendleton, on the runway, about to get on a plane and fly to Iraq, knelt on the runway and refused to go and spent a long time in the brig um, for his refusal to fight an unjust and, in fact, illegal war. And there were many others like him um, who then started incredible organizations, Courage to Resist, War Resisters League. And I don't think we acknowledge those stories nearly enough. Um, in fact, I can't think of a film, none comes to mind immediately, that, that's really about war resistors or the story of people like Siegfried Sassoon, you know, who's got this incredible story becoming a pacifist in the midst of the First World War, writing beautiful poetry, being institutionalized, you know, the whole story that Pat Barker lays out in Regeneration. Those stories are powerful. And I think, you know, so I was socialized here in South Africa, right? It never occurred to me that I could refuse to serve in the army all through my youth. Every Friday, we dressed up in military attire and we marched around my school. And it was only in my final year, as I became involved in the anti-apartheid movement, that I heard of the end conscription campaign. And it dawned on me that I didn't have to fight in the apartheid army. And I started then going to demonstrations outside of local Uh, white high schools, because of course it was young white men who were being conscripted, and we would urge young men not to join the army. But had there been films, you know, so instead of Gallipoli, had there been a film about someone like Siegfried Sassoon, instead of Rambo, had there been a film about a conscientious objector or a war resistor, um, who incurred all sorts of costs, right? Um, There are stories of enormous courage and conviction, many of them perfect for a film. And yet those stories don't exist. And so in our work, just to return to that for a moment, what we do try and do is shine a light on the men who are living, you know, their commitment to gender equality, to peace. I'll give you an example. In Afghanistan, Wilp um, had about 10,000 members. Um, This is Wilp Afghanistan, a section headed up by a remarkable woman, Jamila Afghani. And when we think about people who would advocate for gender equality and be prepared to take some risks in a country like Afghanistan. We think of women, right? And of course, that's usually who it is. But what's so interesting about Wolf Afghanistan is 3,000 of their 10,000 members were men who had chosen to associate with an organization called the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And they were organizing in religious communities, on the university campuses, in political organizations for women's rights. And Many of them have paid quite a price. They've had to flee and go into exile or go underground um, if they weren't able to leave. But around the world, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Cameroon, where there's a big program that Wilp is running, 
around this issue of men, masculinities, and peace, there are men who are increasingly stepping forward and saying, I am not going to participate in violence. I'm not going to support war. Um, and I'm going to raise my voice for gender equality and for peace. You know, it really is whether it's Nicaragua or Mongolia or Europe, parts of Southern Africa, there's a big uh, Meningage network in Rwanda, you know, countries scarred by violence, men and women stepping forward together and saying, like, we're going to do something about this. And I think it's an incredibly exciting story that doesn't get enough attention. And so, you know, even just to tell the story of women and men in a place like Mongolia or Rwanda or rural Tennessee that are working together for a more gender just and more peaceful world is a story worth telling. Um, you can have some quite quotidian stories in a way, but in the absence of those stories making it into the media currently, it would be a breakthrough to have writers draw attention to those stories. We will do our very best. It is a fascinating topic. I could talk about the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom all day, but Dean Peacock, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Mark, thank you very much. I look forward to staying in touch. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Dean Peacock for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? There are hundreds of war stories left to tell, just not that kind of war story. Consider the stories of the pacifists, of those who resist war. Perhaps you could give them a voice through your writing. Masculinity is becoming increasingly defined by violence. Together we can imagine a new form of masculinity brought to life through our characters. What would that look like? What traits would be most desirable? And finally, many stories need to feature violence in order to be bold. But as we said in our last episode with Kevin Jared Hussain, remember to bring context to that violence for your reader. Don't fan the flame of violence just for the sake of violence. Use it to communicate a deeper message. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Also, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London, titled Inside Stories. These events are not recorded and not repeated, and will put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.